You know, the Bible says that Christians are aliens, are foreigners in this world. Uh, Despite what some may think, we are not a moral majority. Uh, We don't have the right to force our thoughts or our views upon the culture. That's never been our calling as ministers of the gospel, and we're all ministers of the gospel. Our our most important task is to utilize the grace and love to convey the gospel to folks, right? So with, with that being said, I wonder what would have happened to me if I were a pastor during the 1800s during slavery. Or let's say if I was a pastor in the 1950s or 1960s during the civil rights movements, what would I have done? What would I have done if I knew that there were people in my congregation that were a part of lynching? From 1877 to 1950, 4,000 black men, women, and children were lynched in 12 states throughout the South. Now, would you consider it judgmental if a pastor or anyone else spoke out against lynching? Would you say that person was being judgmental? I can't imagine anybody that would say that. That person is just judging to say that lynching is wrong. I mean, really? Lynching? I mean, who are we to speak out against the evils in society, right? That's how it goes. Would I have to face the rhetoric that who am I to force my view upon others? I mean, just let people lynch. Besides, you can't legislate morality, right? And what if I heard that if, if I really cared... I would be a member of the NAACP helping the black community get out of poverty, get an education, then I might have a right to speak about lynching. But otherwise, shut your trap. Would I hear that there is no truth, that all I have is my opinion, that there are no moral absolutes when it comes to lynching. It's just my cultural interpretation. Lynching. Now I ask you in the, in the, in the face of all that, can you erase the travesty of 4,000 men, women, and children being lynched? Okay, you have all that rhetoric and you have lynching, which, is, which weighs heavier. These victims were defenseless because they were not a part of the ruling culture. They were not in power. And the people that were in power apparently didn't care too much. And I know that's a generalization, but these horrible crimes continued. And in many locations, it was covered up. Despite the rhetoric, does anything 
erase that these were crimes. Horrible in their evil. Despicable in their practice. And prominent in the immorality compared to other evils in society. See, in my mind, it doesn't matter what other people think. Lynching is wrong. It doesn't matter what other cultures think. It doesn't matter what my neighbors think. Lynching is bad. Anybody got a problem with that? (laughs) That sounded almost like I'm going to come and get you. I didn't mean it that way, but... Do you really, when you think about it, do you have a problem with that? Can we not see that that is evil? Can we not see that people who who defended lynching are deficient in their moral reasoning? Or worse, deliberate in their refusal to face the wickedness of it. Would I be a judgmental, theocracy-loving, non-progressive, hate-filled Christian who limits the rights of others if I spoke out against lynching? I suppose you could probably find some that would say that. They'd probably be wearing white hoods. You see, some things are so evil And people so blinded, it boggles the mind. What the crap were you thinking? I mean, really? Sometimes people need to be protected. And we need to stand up. Right? There are some things that deserve to never be tolerated. There are some evils that are done to the defenseless that they need others who will intervene. What if I told you that there is a current evil in our culture that has killed an amount of human beings equal to the entire population of the states of California and New York. Would you be alarmed? Would you care? What if I told you that there is an evil that is killing the black population in our society more than any other cause? Would you give a wit? Or are we going to be like the population of 100 years ago? You know what? That doesn't concern us. Just let those people do their thing. Who are we to judge? Who are we to judge? Oh, Oh, my land. Let's say that you live next door to somebody. And this man calls himself a Christian, all right? And the man you know is esteemed by the community. 
And you see him every Sunday morning going to church, right? He's always been nice to you. But you have noticed something unusual. You have noticed that he occasionally lynches people in his backyard. Let me ask you this. Would you still think of that person as moral? I hope not. Why? Because some acts are so heinous that people lose the right to be called morally fit. There is such a thing as a moral plague, a blight upon our national character that is greater than allowing lynching. And it is that our country has approved, legislated, and funded people killing their babies. How have we lost the outrage over this? Over 60 million babies have been killed since Roe versus Wade, more than the population of California and New York. Yes, it's a law, but it's still evil, you see. You see, it was once law that black people could be slaves, that they were not fully human, that they couldn't vote. That was law. But see, sometimes law does not line up with what is moral. Now listen, I am not giving this message on the public square. I'm giving it to you, the church where I pastor. Why? Because something is rotten in Denmark. That's a saying. (laughs) I know that went over many of your heads. Let me explain what I'm meaning. You're really not giving a good sermon when you have to explain every sentence. Why? There's something wrong when many in the church cannot recognize the evil of this. Okay? And I'm working from the premise, and here's my premise. If we cannot know whether killing a baby is evil, and we're not sure of that, how in the heck can we discern anything else? I don't know how we can. Did you know that only 32% of Christians professing a personal relationship with Jesus Christ believe that morals are objective? That's why I give you this message. It's for the church. I'm not talking to all the other people out there. I'm talking about us right here. And worse, among Christian teenagers, guess how many believe that truth is objective and that morals are objective? 9%. That's staggering. Staggering. There is a serious issue in the church. And there's a huge swath of our young people who think of themselves as Christians who have never known a country other than the one that they're in that affirms abortion, and they think it's okay. Just not that big of a deal. I hope those stats are wrong for us here. 
You know the most women who get abortions in the U.S. are Christians? 42% Protestant, 27% Catholic. Jeez, it's just unbelievable. I was talking to a friend of mine who went to a church with a well-known, nationally known pastor who told him, you will never hear a message on abortion in our church. He said this proudly. Why? Because they knew that they would lose the college crowd. And they had a huge college crowd, several colleges in the city where he was at. Gospel preaching. Never will talk about it. Let me first say this. If you've had an abortion, and with a crowd this size, can't help but have women who have experienced an abortion. I want you to know that as your friend, there is forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. There is restoration in Jesus Christ. Please know this. You can admit your sin to God, and he will forgive you. And if you respond humbly and honestly before God, he can release you from that shame and guilt. I believe that wholeheartedly. And we'll be more than happy to help you. Call the church office, talk to me, any of our leaders. We can help you to process that grief. Perhaps there are some in our congregation that are considering an abortion. I beg of you that the the consequences of that are far greater than what you can imagine. And we can help you, again, with resources to help you through this. You are not alone in this if you have an unwanted pregnancy. My goal today is to cast down arguments or ideas that exalt themselves above the knowledge of God. I often hear that morals are relative. But I don't think anyone, and I challenge every class with this, I don't think anyone who says that really takes themselves too seriously. And I I think that most people, to to be fair, say that because they just don't want to get in a fight. They they, they don't want to judge people. And I get that. I, I understand that sentiment, all right? But to truly live like there are no more, uh, there are no morals, everything is relative, I don't think anybody does that and can do that. I don't think it's possible. You know why I know it's not possible? Because let's see what happens when those people who say that, let's see what happens when their spouse cheats on them. Let's see what happens when you steal their lawnmower. Suddenly what is right and wrong comes into clear focus. My hope today is that we can form our thoughts well and we can target our efforts to help. my, My goal here is not that we can create hundreds of people picketing. My goal is that we can take our hands and feet and do something like Bethany is doing and, and just be a practical help and assistance and provide love and compassion. We've been a monthly supporter of the Pregnancy Care Center here in Springfield ever since it started and will continue to be. And I know that some of you have, have volunteered there and I, I commend you for that. We should care that the most dangerous place 
for a person to be in the United States is in the womb. Think of that. Three thousand abortions every day. On 9-11, there were 3,000 people killed. We saw that as a great travesty, and it happens every day in our nation. 3,000 people are killed. 22% of all pregnancies in the U.S. end in abortion, if you exclude miscarriages. Abortion has contributed to a culture that minimizes the value of human life, especially minorities. Brian Peterson and Amy Grossberg were a high school couple that gave birth to their son in a hotel room. And what did they do? They smashed his head and threw his lifeless body into a dumpster. They got two years in jail for that. In October 2015, Jason Brown was sentenced to 28 years in prison for the torture and killing of seven dogs. Now, I think a guy should be put in jail for torturing and killing dogs. But is there something a little out of proportion? Scott Peterson was sentenced with double homicide, put on death row, for killing his pregnant wife. I think our culture struggles from a moral schizophrenia. The moral compass of our culture seems broken, and our history is not real good. This is not about left or right. And if you know me, you know that I'm honest when I say that, because I could care less. What I'm about to say I just got to say it, all right? Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood, positioned her abortion clinics purposely in black neighborhoods. Why? I'll quote from her. The mass of Negroes, particularly in the South, still breed carelessly and disastrously, with the result that the increase among Negroes, even more than among whites, is from the portion of the population least intelligent and fit and least able to rear children properly. (laughs) What? The, the, The purpose in promoting birth control to her was to create a race of thoroughbreds. Thoroughbreds, excuse me. Thoroughbreds. But thoroughbreds, those are the real little horses. All right, Guess what? Today, 78% of Planned Parenthood clinics are in minority communities. Half the pregnancies of African-American communities now end in abortion. So they placed abortion clinics in black urban areas of America to keep down the black population. And to this day, the number one killer in the black community is abortion. Take guns and AIDS together. And it still is not even close. The number one killer in black communities 
is abortion. Where is the moral outrage? Now, there are issues certainly tangential to abortion that have to be addressed. But it has to be addressed in the context of eliminating humans, slaughtering other humans. And Sanger has been effective with her enduring racist policies funded by the American government to the tune of $500 million a year. I'm all for health care, but why can't you give the health care without killing? By the way, there are 30 Planned Parenthood executives that make over $200,000 a year. Why can't they just do it without the killing? I'll tell you why. Because the abortion industry is a billion, that's with a B as in a boy, billion dollar business. I know people who favor abortion will say that, uh, favor policies that favor abortion, will say, well, uh, what we're doing is working to uh, get people health care, supply birth control, address poverty, and this reduces abortion. And I would applaud those efforts, all right? But, But don't claim that you have the moral high ground because you are giving health care to the baby, feeding the baby, but you want to kill the baby. How does that work? It's not that these other things don't matter. They do matter. But we have lost our moral sensibilities when we justify killing a person and have more moral outrage over the loss of insurance. The rhetoric and feigned moral outrage over lesser matters, in my mind, is not going to cover up the stench of millions of corpses. But you say, listen, those aren't, Those aren't humans. Fetuses, tissue, blob. Really? They're just something else. Scott Klusendorf writes that there are four differences between a fetus and what some people would say is not human and a baby that is born in what we would call human. And those four differences are size, level of development, environment, and degree of dependency. SLED, S-L-E-D, if you want to have a little acrostic to remember that. Size. So are, are smaller people less human than larger people? I mean, men are usually larger than women, so do men deserve more rights than women? Of course not. Size does not change the nature of something? How about if a person is more physically or intellectually developed? Does that make a person more human? Uh, can we rightfully say that a, uh, a C-minus student 
is less valuable than an A-plus student? Who would say that? Or physically, what if we said a a five-year-old girl is less developed than a 14-year-old one? We would agree with that. The the, the five-year-old girl does not even have her reproductive system operating yet. Is she less of a person than the adult? She's not as developed. Why would you rule out the fetus? from being human simply because its development doesn't match ours. That doesn't make sense. Some will say, well, the environment or location makes one human. I mean, once a baby is born, then it becomes human. The geography changes its state. Janet and I flew to Florida last summer. Did that change whether we were humans or not? Of course not. You, you left your homes to come to church. Did that change who you were as a human being? Did you stop being who you were because your geography changed? It's ridiculous. So answer me this. How does the simple journey of eight inches down the birth canal suddenly transform a non-human tissue blob into a protectable human life we ought to value and respect? How does that happen? Some will say, well, you know, it's not viable. It's not viable, so therefore it's not human. It's completely dependent upon the mother when it's in the womb. So it's not fully human. Well, see, I know there are those here in this congregation right now that are dependent upon insulin, pacemakers, diabetic medication, or in my case, ESPN, to survive. We need those things. Are we any less human than others? Stephen Hawking is an invalid in a wheelchair, completely dependent upon others to live. I don't know of anyone who would say he is less human because he can't walk on his own. My friend, size, level of development, environment, and degree of dependency are not morally relevant to the question of what makes one human. What we are talking about is a human being in the womb. Why is it that abortion-minded moms, when they see the results of an ultrasound, the majority of them change their mind? Because they are faced with the reality of what is in the womb. They picture, wow, that sure looks like a baby, like a human. And why is it that abortion providers never want the mom to see the truth of what is actually in the womb? Why not be open? Why not be informative so a woman has all the information she needs to make a decision? They have to hide the truth to keep the money flowing. One of the biggest arguments in favor of abortion was that it's going to help to eliminate kids growing up in troubled homes 
who faced child abuse. And there would be fewer out-of-wedlock births. Well, you know, after legalization, I can't say this is causal, but it's still a fact. After legalization, the reported number of child abuse cases more than quintupled and the number of births to unmarried women more than tripled. And in addition, a Finnish study that was done after pregnancy found that the suicide rate after an abortion was three times the general suicide rate. Sharon Osborne, the TV personality and wife of Ozzy Osborne, who I often use as an illustration here in the sermons. <laughs> She said this, she said, I had an abortion at 17 and it was the worst thing I ever did. I was two months gone when I realized. I went to my mom and she said, without pausing for breath, you have to get rid of it. She told me where the clinic was and then virtually pushed me off. She was so angry. She said, I'd gotten myself in this mess and she would have to get me out. But she didn't come. I was alone. I was terrified. It was full of other young girls, and we were all terrified and looking at each other, and nobody was saying a bloody word. I howled my way through it, and it was horrible. I would never recommend it to anyone because it comes back to haunt you. Now, Job had a difficult season with God because there were a lot of things that happened to Job in terms of losing his business and his family. And he was sick. He questioned God. And we read this in Job 10, 8 and 9. It says, Your hands fashioned and made me, and now you have destroyed me altogether. Remember that you have made me like clay, and will you return me to the dust? And Job is saying, God, you went to great pains in, in developing us and, and, and designing us and putting us together. You were intimately involved in the details of the unborn, including the bones and the skin and the organs. And we see the same truth echoed in Psalm 139 when it says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. God is the one who designed us, put us together, formed and, and planned the life of every baby. God is the creator. God is the ultimate owner. And every man and woman is a steward of God's gift. A baby is not owned by a woman but by God. He is the possessor. And my hope, my dear friends, is that all of us here can value the life in the womb and that we will deal with compassion and grace to a society that is suffering 
from minimizing the value of human life. We have an answer because we know that every human being is made in the image of God regardless of race, regardless of religion. Every human being has value. I think when we can approach this as a church from a positive aspect and offer hope. I'm not here to condemn the culture. It'll do that for itself. We are here to offer hope and to say, hey, there is a better way. And we can help. Let's pray.